But that doesn't mean that we don't have things that we vote on on a daily basis. Every single day we have propositions that are placed before us and we have the option to say yay or we have the option to say nay. Every single day we make decisions. Things are placed before us and we have to make a decision to say yes, I'm going to involve myself in this or no, I'm not going to involve myself in this. Some of them are very inconsequential. Some of them are not very important and some of them are very important. For instance, am I going to take the trash out tonight? Or am I going to have to wait, or am I going to choose to wait till tomorrow? Are we going to play this game where like you're bouncing the trash as it stacks up the wall? Have you ever been there? It's a decision that you have to make, yes or no. Am I going to watch another episode? Or am I going to go to bed and get a little bit more sleep on TV? It's a decision that you have to make. Am I going to take this job? Am I going to take this promotion? Or am I going to go in a different direction? Am I going to accept another job or accept another promotion? Here's a big one. Am I going to eat at home or am I going to eat out? Maybe that's a decision that you make every single week. The point is, we have propositions that are placed before us. We have situations that are placed before us. And we have to make the decision. Am I going to vote yay or am I going to vote nay? Am I going to say yes to this or am I going to say no to this? I'm sure that you're well aware of the fact that Jesus is no exception. On a much higher level, Jesus places Himself before us each and every day. Every single day, Jesus places His life, His death, His burial, His resurrection, His continued and exalted high priesthood ministry. He places His love, His power, His mercy, and His forgiveness in front of us, and we have to make the decision. Are we going to vote yay? Or are we going to vote nay? Are we going to say yes or are we going to say no? Are we going to choose to follow Jesus or are we not going to follow Jesus? Are we going to surrender everything at the feet of Jesus? Or are we going to surrender some things at the feet of Jesus and continue to live with other things in our hands, taking it under our control, surrendering it to nobody but ourselves? When we look at Mark chapter 3, verses 7 through 35, we find several different groups who are confronted with that very same question. Jesus stands before them, and they have to make the decision whether they're going to accept him or whether they're going to reject him. Whether they're going to follow him or whether they're going to turn their backs and walk in the opposite direction. And so as we think about these different groups, and we think about the decisions that they make, and the votes that they cast, I hope that it prompts us to think about ourselves, to think about our lives. What kind of votes have we been casting when it comes to Jesus? What kind of decisions have we been making lately when it comes to following Jesus and surrendering everything to Him, looking forward to the week that we're going to live, Lord willing, if the sun rises tomorrow, what kind of decision are we going to make whenever it comes to our Lord? Well, the first group that we find who's called to make a decision about Jesus are the crowds. The crowds that we find in verses 7 through 12, verse 20, verse 32, we find their, them casting their vote. They're presented with Jesus and they answer saying, Yay. Notice, we go back to chapter 3 and verse 6. Last week we studied all the way from chapter 2 and verse 1 to chapter 3 and verse 6, and we watched as the religious leaders were making their complaints against Jesus. 
All of those complaints led to and crescendoed towards what we find in verse 6 of chapter 3. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against Jesus. What were they holding counsel about? How to destroy Jesus. They wanted to kill Jesus. They wanted to remove Jesus. They wanted to take Jesus out of the way. And so they come together to decide the best way to do that. Jesus, in response to that, in verse number 7, in a way to, of self-preservation, withdraws with His disciples to the Sea of Galilee. The Sea of Galilee would have been a more deserted and isolated location of course, it's deserted and isolated until people hear that Jesus is there. Whenever people hear that Jesus is there, the Word spreads like wildfire. And when you look at verse 7 and verse 8 in chapter number 3, people are coming to see Jesus and to listen to Jesus from everywhere. Now, I told you this morning, I'm not an artist. I've never claimed to be an artist. But maybe this is helpful to show us where all of these different people groups were coming from. You can see that little body of water. Maybe it's a little bit small. But the little body of water called Lake Galilee. That's where Jesus withdraws to. That's where Jesus goes in chapter 3 and verse 7. And you can see all of the different regions and all of the different places that came to Jesus. If you were in Galilee, you didn't have that far to go. Of course, the Sea of Galilee was located in the uh, territory of Galilee. But you can see other places where the lines are pretty long. People traveled pretty sub substantial distances in order to spend time with Jesus. For instance, you can see that they traveled from the south from Idumea, from Judea, from the city of Jerusalem up to the Sea of Galilee to be with Jesus. You see the northern cities on the coast, the cities of Tyre and Sidon, they traveled south to spend some time with Jesus. You can see across the Jordan River in the region of Perea, they traveled north northwest to spend some time with Jesus. When people heard that Jesus had withdrawn to the Sea of Galilee, the point of this map is that they came from everywhere. They wanted to hear Jesus. They wanted to witness and experience Jesus' healing power, how Jesus was able to cast out demons, and that's exactly what He did. When Jesus heard that this big crowd was coming, He prepared for it. He had His disciples get a boat, and He pushed out that boat a little bit from the coast. Why did Jesus do that? Mark tells us, to stop the crowd from pressing in on Him to the point that they would crush Him. If Jesus gets out on a boat and pushes it back a little bit from the coast, all of the people, of course, would have been standing on the shoreline. Jesus would have been able to teach them in an unhindered way. And that's exactly what Jesus did. He stood on the boat a little bit from them and He was able to teach them without them pressing in on Him and crushing Him. When Jesus wasn't teaching them from the boat, He was down on the shore involved in their lives. He was healing them of various diseases, casting out demons. Whenever the demons came out, they were testifying to His true identity. You are the Son of God. And then we skip down to verse 20. The Bible says in Mark chapter 3 and verse 20 that when Jesus goes back to the city of Capernaum, the crowd gathered again. 
Of course, there might have been different people in the crowd of verse 20 as opposed to the crowd in verses 7 through 12, but I imagine there was some pretty significant overlap for Mark to say, hey, this crowd came together again in the city of Capernaum, and it was such a great crowd that Jesus could not even sit down to eat. And then you skip down to 32. Once again, Jesus is in Capernaum, and what is he doing? He's preaching to a large crowd. They're sitting around him inside of this house. And a little bit later in the text, as Luke read for us in our scripture reading, Jesus identifies these people as those who have done the will of God. Those who are a part of his spiritual family, his mother, his brothers, and his sisters. You think about the crowds in Mark chapter 3. Look at their diligence, look at their faith, look at their willingness to travel. Look at their desire to spend time with Jesus, to experience Jesus, to listen to what Jesus had to say. Their vote is pretty obvious, isn't it? They're casting their vote and their answer is yes. We want to follow Jesus. We want to spend time with Jesus. As we continue reading, we find another group that's a little bit smaller, but yet they cast the same vote in verses 13-19 through saying yes to Jesus, the Apostles. Jesus withdraws to the Sea of Galilee in verse number 7, but then if you skip down to verse number 13, He withdraws on top of a mountain, an even more isolated location. And instead of a group coming to Him from everywhere, Jesus hand-selects the people that He wants. The, The text says that He called to Him those He desired, and they came to Him. It was 12 men. And Jesus appoints those men to be His 12 apostles. What was going to be their purpose as apostles? Why is Jesus calling these twelve men to serve Him in this way? Notice that Mark explains it to us. In verse number 14, He appointed twelve whom He also named apostles first so that they might be with Him. Jesus knew that the day would come whenever His earthly ministry was finished. Jesus knew that one day He was going to ascend back to the Father and that He needed people to continue His work, to continue His mission. And so He calls the twelve apostles. They're going to be with Him. They're going to travel with Him. Jesus is going to train them both by His teaching and by their experiences. He's going to prepare them to continue His mission. And that's exactly what they did whenever we read and study through the book of Acts. But in order for us to get to the book of Acts, here they need to spend some time with Jesus. And so that's the first point. It's more of an inward purpose. They're going to spend time with Jesus. But then notice it's not just an inward purpose, but also an outward purpose. He selects these twelve men so that He might send them out. You know what the word apostle literally means? The word apostle means one who is sent out. If you're an apostle, that means that you're sent out on a particular purpose. And so there's a little bit of of wordplay here. Jesus selects apostles, ones who are sent out, to send them out. They're not just going to spend time with Jesus, but they're going to go out into the world to do what? First, He says they're going to preach. They're going to carry Jesus' message. Second, they're going to cast out demons. They're going to carry Jesus' authority. 
He selects these 12 men to be His apostles, to spend time with Him, and to carry His message and His authority to the world around them. We see their names. I think it's worth reading. Beginning in verse number 16, notice He appointed the 12. The first one listed is Simon, to whom He gave the name Peter. James the son of Zebedee, John the brother of James, Andrew, those are ones who we've seen so far in our study of Mark. But then we find some new individuals. Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, which is Levi, who we talked about last week, Thomas, James the son of Alphaeus, Thaddeus, Simon the zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Jesus invites these twelve men to come up on this mountain, and He presents Himself to them. He presents an amazing opportunity to follow Him, to be His apostles, to spend time with Him, to bear His name, His teaching, and His authority. How did they respond to that invitation? They accepted it. They said yes to Jesus. Yes, we want to be your apostles. Yes, we want to follow you. They casted their vote. And their vote was yea. But we don't need to think that everybody in this text was convinced to follow Jesus. As we keep reading in verses 22 rather through 30, we find Jesus' enemies, the scribes, saying no to Him. They're casting their vote and they're saying nay. Which is really not surprising according to what we saw last week in Mark 2 and into Mark 3, how they were constantly complaining about Him and they come together in chapter 3 and verse 6 to see how they can destroy Him. But when you come to verse 22, we find that there are scribes who came from Jerusalem. That'd be like sending representatives from the headquarters of a business to go check out a particular location. Here come the scribes from the headquarters in the city of Jerusalem. Why are they coming? They're coming to intentionally carry out a smear campaign against Jesus. They couldn't deny that Jesus could perform miracles. They couldn't deny that Jesus could cast out demons. People saw it. They had saw it themselves. But what they could debate about is the source of how Jesus is able to perform miracles and cast out demons. They come to carry out this smear campaign against Jesus to basically say, hey, yeah, we we know He can cast out demons. We know He can perform miracles. But people, what you need to know about this is that He's not doing this by the power of God. He's doing all of this by the power of Satan. You see that in in chapter 3 and verse 22. It's very intentional. He is possessed by Beelzebul and by the prince of demons, He cast out demons. It's very obvious how they're casting their vote, isn't it? They're rejecting Jesus. They're standing opposed to Jesus. They're intentionally saying no to Jesus, crediting His power to the power of Satan. Jesus responds to that very logically, doesn't He? In verses 20, beginning in verse number 23 and going down to verse 26, Jesus shows them how that claim doesn't even make sense. It doesn't make sense that Jesus is casting out demons by the power of Beelzebul. He asked the question in 23, how can Satan cast out Satan? If you have a kingdom or a house that's divided against itself, is it going to be able to stand? Of course not. If a kingdom or house is divided against itself, it's not going to stand. They're going to fight against themselves to the point that they are eventually going to fall. And that's the point that Jesus is making. He says whenever you keep reading, verse number 26, if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he can't stand but is coming to an end. 
If I'm casting out demons by the power of Satan, then Satan's house and his kingdom is divided against itself. And if his kingdom is divided against itself, then it's going to fall. It doesn't have any other choice. Jesus is showing them this doesn't make sense. This isn't right. This isn't logical to say that I'm casting out Satan by the power of Satan. But then he even takes a step forward in verse number 27 to show that he's more powerful than Satan. If you're going to enter into a strong man's house and you're going to take his stuff, what do you need to do first? You might need to take care of the strong man first. Because if you just walk into his house and try to take his stuff, he's probably going to take you down for that. Jesus says, look at what I've been doing. Jesus says, I've walked into the strong man's house First I bound the strong man, and then I plundered all of his goods. Jesus has entered into the body of those who were possessed by Satan. He has, he has bound Satan as a very strong being and threw out all of Satan's demons from these individuals who he was interacting with. He's not doing this by the power of Satan. In fact, he's casting out Satan. It's the very opposite of what the scribes were claiming. He's not doing this by the power of Satan. He is overcoming and demonstrates that he is more powerful than Satan. And then, as he closes out in 28 and 29, he offers this very strong warning to the Pharisees about this path that they're going down. He mentions blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. We know according to Matthew 12 and verse 28, if you want to look at a parallel account of this, Matthew 12 and verse 28 says that Jesus casted out demons by the Spirit of God, by the power of the Holy Spirit. When these scribes looked at the power of the Holy Spirit and credited it to Satan, what they were doing was speaking blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. They were speaking evil against the Holy Spirit because they were looking at something that the Spirit did and accrediting that power to the enemy. So Jesus shows them the severity of that. He says if you keep walking down this path, if you keep blaspheming against the Holy Spirit, you will not be forgiven. He says this is an eternal sin, not only in this age, but also the age that is coming. Just as a side note here, Christians oftentimes read through a text like this one, especially the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, and we wonder if we have ever done that. We wonder if we ever accidentally blasphemed against the Holy Spirit and we're never going to be forgiven for it. And it's something that we worry about. We don't have time to talk about this fully, but let me just mention a couple of things. First, I don't believe that this sin, blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, can be committed today like it was committed then. Blasphemy against the Holy Spirit in Mark the third chapter is looking at Jesus' miracle working ministry and crediting the power of the Spirit to the power of Satan. Jesus is not on earth anymore. We're not able to witness Jesus heal people or cast out demons like He was. And so since Jesus is not on earth anymore casting out demons like He was in Mark 3, that has removed the opportunity for us to commit this sin. We can't look at the power that Jesus is performing and accredit it to the power of Satan because He's not on earth with us any longer. And then the second thing that I would mention is this. If you've ever read through this text and been worried about your salvation, if you've ever read through Mark 3 and, and been worried about whether you've committed this sin or not, I'm 99% sure that you haven't committed it. 
Because this is talking about something that is deliberate. This is talking about something that is intentional. The scribes are not accidentally looking at the ministry of Jesus and accidentally making this kind of claim. This is something that they are doing on purpose, looking at the power of the Spirit and accrediting it to the power of Satan. But when we come back to the context, what's going on in this section of Scripture, they've casted their vote. And it's very clear that their vote is no. They are going to stand opposed to Jesus. Then in many ways, we go to the opposite extreme. We go from Jesus' enemies, the scribes, to Jesus' family. In many ways, they are very different from one another. But notice in this text, they cast the same vote. They look at Jesus and they say no. They look at Jesus and they vote nay. Jesus Rather, Mark mentions Jesus' family in Mark chapter 3 and verse 21. If we go down to Mark chapter 3 and verse 31, we find that we're talking about his mother and his brothers. Whenever they heard about Jesus' ministry, and they heard about how Jesus was teaching and large crowds were coming to him, and he was healing people and casting out demons, how did they respond? The Bible says in verse 21, when his family heard what Jesus was doing, they went out to seize him, for they were saying he's out of his mind. I know that I used this illustration. We talked about this on Mother's Day whenever we studied about Mary, but, but I can't help but, but picture this as we read through this text. Mary hears about what Jesus is doing, and she thinks that Jesus has gone crazy. She thinks that Jesus has absolutely lost his mind. And so she makes a 20-mile trip from the city of Nazareth to the city of Capernaum to seize Jesus, to grab him by the ear and drag him back home. She thinks that Jesus is making a mistake. She thinks that Jesus is going to dishonor himself or dishonor their family. And so she's going to try to fix this mistake. She brings her other sons along with him, who by the way, according to John chapter 7 and verse 5, don't believe in Jesus either at this point. She brings her sons along with him as, as some muscles. She can't drag Jesus 20 miles by herself, so she's going to bring her sons to help her out with that. So in verse 31, they get to Capernaum. And you can imagine them walking around the city asking different people, hey, have you seen Jesus? Do you know Jesus of Nazareth? Do you know where we could find Him? It wouldn't take very long because of His popularity for someone to say, yeah, I know Him. And I know exactly where He is. And so they take Mary and Jesus' brothers and they come to the house where Jesus is teaching. They enter into the house and they say to Him, this is 32, your mother and your brothers are outside. They're looking for you. They're seeking you. They want to talk to you. How did Jesus answer? He asked a question, who are my mother and my brothers? Well, duh. They're the ones standing outside. We just told you. They're wanting to talk to you. They've been looking for you. They've traveled all this way to see you. Jesus' response is beautiful in 34. It's what we read in our Scripture reading in 34 and 35. Jesus prioritizes His spiritual family over His physical family. Isn't that a lesson for us? Isn't that something that we need to hear? Looking about at those who sat around him, he said, and other gospel accounts says he extended his arm, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. According to what the Bible tells us, Jesus never goes out to meet 
his physical family. Why? Because he's spending time with his spiritual family. He's teaching people to do the will of God. These are my mother and brothers and sisters. Whoever does the will of God. But we see Jesus' family, just like Jesus' enemy and the scribes, they're casting their vote against Jesus, saying no. Rejecting Jesus. This is not the vote that they always cast, by the way. If you go to the book of Acts, they change their vote. You find Mary and Jesus' brothers present with the apostles in Acts chapter 1. James, one of the brothers, becomes a leader in the church at Jerusalem. And so this isn't the vote that they always cast. But it's the vote that they're casting right now. No, nay, we're not going to accept what Jesus is teaching. So in Mark chapter 3, we're presented with these four different groups. And really, the vote is divided. Jesus is presenting Himself. He's presenting His love and His truth and His ministry to all of these different people, and they respond very differently. The crowds and the apostles cast their vote saying, Yea. The scribes and Jesus' family cast their vote saying, Nay. As we read through this text, maybe it should make us think about ourselves. Maybe it should make me think about me. Maybe it should make you think about you. What about you? What kind of vote are you casting whenever it comes to Jesus? Because like we said at the beginning, every day Jesus presents Himself to us. Every day Jesus presents to us His life, death, burial, and resurrection. Every day He presents His continued and exalted high priesthood ministry and mediatorship on our behalf. Every day He presents to us a love and forgiveness, mercy and power that we can't find anywhere else. How are we responding to that? On a daily basis, what kind of vote are we casting? Are we saying yay or are we saying nay? Are we saying, Jesus, yes, I want to follow You and in everything that I do, are we saying, no, Jesus, it's really not important to me throughout the week? Are we surrendering everything at the feet of Jesus on a daily basis? Are we keeping some things for ourselves? Determining what we're going to do. Determining how we're going to live. Placing our lives in our own hands. What kind of vote have you been casting over the last few months? What kind of vote have you been casting over the last few weeks? You look forward to the week that Lord willing will enter into the work week tomorrow. What kind of vote are you going to cast this week? Whenever you are around your friends, whenever you're around your family, what kind of vote are you going to cast? Whenever you are driving down the road and somebody cuts you off in traffic, what kind of vote are you going to cast? Whenever you receive a call that absolutely breaks your heart and shatters your life in a million pieces, what kind of vote are you going to cast? Whenever you face temptation this week and it's really hard and it's really tempting to go down this wrong path and nobody's going to know about it. It's just the screen on my computer, the screen on my phone. No one's going to figure out this lie that I tell. What kind of vote are you going to cast? Because every day this week, Jesus is going to present Himself right in front of your eyes. As we sang just a few moments ago, and you're going to have to make a decision. Are you going to say yes or are you going to say no? Are you going to cast your vote saying yay or are you going to cast your vote 
saying nay. Are you going to be like the crowds? Are you going to be like Jesus' family? Are you going to be like the scribes? Are you going to be like the apostles? The decision is yours. The decision is mine. Maybe it's the case that you take a look at your life and you realize, I haven't been casting the right vote. The good news is you can always change it. You can always make that right. Maybe that means you need to be buried in the waters of baptism tonight, saying yes to Jesus and obeying His commands, what it takes to become one of His followers. Maybe over the last few months you've gotten caught up and maybe you haven't even realized it, but you've been saying no to Jesus and Jesus hasn't really been important to you. That can change tonight. We'd love to encourage you. We'd love to pray for you. If you need to change your vote, change it now as together we stand and sing.